Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Good evening, and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello! So tonight we're doing kind of a special episode, and we're going to try to get through this with a minimum of sound problems so we can edit it and get yes. it out right away, because I know. <laughs> Today we're going to do what Jessie did on her summer vacation. Yay! <laughs> yes! At least the most medieval portion of it. Is. Right. We're going to start... Yes. <laughs> yeah, we're going to start with Oberammergau. Yes. Which is a place... Yes. I was not... I didn't know that the first time you mentioned that. I was like... Oberammergau. Yep. I, th- I thought, I don't know what I thought it was. It is a city. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's not a city at all. It's a tiny little town. In Bavaria. Yes. Which is, I've heard it called the Texas of Germany, but not by Ooh. an actual German. So. No. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay. It's the, I mean, it's got, it's the Midwest of Germany. Okay. And I say that because... I mean, people from Bavaria also settled the Midwest of the U.S., right? Famously. <laughs> yes. Wisconsin, Chicago. Um, many of the German residents in these places are were from Bavaria. Yes. Certainly not all, but many. I mean, so- <laughs> the, sh- the Germanic influence in those areas are strongly Bavarian. Mm-hmm. Um, not exclusively, of course. Uh, it should be pointed out that in addition to this Bavarian... Germany is also Catholic Germany. Right. As opposed to Lutheran Germany. Which is why we have fish fries on Friday. Yes. In Wisconsin. Yes. So there are those very, very interesting things. I mean, when we think of German decoration, or mm-hmm. Chicago has its like Christmas market every year, and all these sellers come from Bavaria. And I used to always wonder why. Mm-hmm. And having now been there, I know why they come. They come because it's a trip for a couple weeks to Chicago. The weather is the same. Oh. But it's awesome. Why wouldn't you go to an American city like Chicago for a couple weeks in the winter? You will have plenty more winter to <laughs> be at home in Bavaria skiing or whatever, if that's your thing. <laughs> yeah, okay. You know? It's mm-hmm. the same way... Someone from Chicago would go to Munich, for example. Mm-hmm. Why would you not do that? Sure. It's a trip to Europe. <laughs> yeah. Right? Um, especially around Christmas time. Mm-hmm. The plaza, like Marienplatz, which is the plaza from the famous, 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 like, new council house, which is old um, <laughs> and amazing and gorgeous and has this clock that um, they now only, it only chimes... You know, cuckoo clocks come from oh, this okay. area. So, um, speaking of sort of German engineering, clockwork. When you say that something's like clockwork in Bavaria, you mean it very literally. Ah. <laughs> they take this really seriously. Okay. Um, and the clock uh, has figures that come out. As I said, they o- it only does it now at like 11 a.m. and noon. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to preserve it. It's got nets over it that you can see straight through, you know, but you don't even see them unless it's really sunny out. But uh, 
to keep the pigeons out. <laughs> ah, okay. Um, yes, but it's amazing. This clack is amazing. Um, figures come out and sort of dance and do things. It's part of, you know, Munich history. Mm-hmm. So there's like processions. Uh, it's it's a There are a couple scenes. One of them is like a procession in front of royalty, and then there's a joust. I almost don't want to spoil what happens. <laughs> <laughs> like the procession comes back, you see the procession again, and you know it's the figures are just gorgeous. I mean they're mm-hmm. amazing. It's just amazing. Um and then the joust comes back and one of the figures gets like hit and falls backward. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's just like on his horse, he like falls back. Yeah. It's amazing. Um and then the that's the sort of the top part and then the bottom part comes and it's these figures that twirl and spin as they go around in a circle and it's the dance mm-hmm. um these sort of dancing figures and um you know like sort of at a, a like a may may day ceremony mm-hmm. there's also a maypole there okay um it's just a little bit off the plaza anyway but um it's just incredible <laughs> uh but this is a part of germany that it definitely has the beer gardens it has all this mm-hmm. stuff it's it's gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. Um, it's also the only place. Well, I don't know. I think it's one of the only places that had the Olympics, and then actually used the stuff. Oh, really? Yeah. Famously, this is just a side note, but the Olympics, you're you should never host the Olympics in your town because they cost just astronomical amounts of money. It's all of a huge waste. Mm-hmm. It all goes to ruin. It. You know, it's just a big mess. It's a horrible mess. It's always a horrible mess. Uh, Yeah, Munich might be one of the few places that escaped that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. They're very proud of it. Um, It's also worth pointing out... bad things happened at their Olympics. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And this is... 1972. It's actually the anniversary of it. Yes. Um, So I have to say, weirdly, they were actually doing stuff for the anniversary. Oh. Yes. And the, the building has been preserved. We did not actually go see all that. I um, want to say that there was a time. movie about this. If you're interested oh God, yes. in the history, Munich. called Munich by to- Tony Kushner wrote it. He wrote it and Spielberg directed Spielberg, yeah. It's an so, amazing film. Yeah, I would say probably not a happy film. Not a happy if film. There's this one moment in it, though, that I actually use in class. Um, it's a great film. It's It very much tries to sort of understand various sides of the issue. Obviously, it, you know, is... Filmed very much from the Jewish perspective, but right. doesn't make all the Jewish characters heroes. It does question sort of what revenge does to you and what happens right. when you go looking for it. As a so, as a brief summary, the movie is about the kidnapping and murder of the Jewish Olympic team in or the Israeli Olympic team. I guess we should. Well, say, it's really in, about the aftermath. It's about the revenge, right? Mossad um, hunted down all of the people, the people and involved, killed them. Yeah. I think, yeah. including with one of them, they may have blown up their telephone. Like the revenge, it was very yeah. complicated and espionage. Um, yes, but um, but anyway, but that so it's a, it is a very good film. It's and it's a phenomenal, phenomenal cast. It was Daniel Craig right before he was cast as Bond. Ooh, uh, Sarah Hines. Anyway, it's all sorts of famous, great people. Eric Bann is the lead. Um, but more specifically, there's this shot in it at the beginning, which is that this part's only the beginning. The inciting incident is only the beginning, but. Um, where they're, everyone's watching the hostage part on TV. Mm-hmm. So this is in the movie. You're watching people watch the hostage situation on TV. Okay. And what Spielberg has done 
is filmed, he refilmed the hostage situation to exactly match the actual footage. Hmm. There's this famous photograph of one of the um, terrorists, basically, when he came out on a balcony. Yeah. And Spielberg films that moment, and it's this incredible sort of meta-theatrical moment. Mm-hmm. This is actually a great sort of intro to Obramica. <laughs> um, it's this incredible meta-theatrical moment where you, of course, are aware that you're watching a film that someone mm-hmm. made, right, of this moment. But it's also a historical moment that was actually captured on film. Right. And did photography. Because this was the 70s, and you, we had that stuff. And, exactly. Yeah, probably in color photos, even. Yes, color and black and white. Mm-hmm. And so he matches it. Mm-hmm. So there's this moment where you are in the room with the hostages, and you see this guy go out on the balcony, and the shot transitions from the sort of fictional recreated world of the film to the shot that exactly matches the real shot. Oh my god. You you see it get set up, and then mm-hmm. you see it happen, right? You see this this shot that became this famous photograph. But of course, like, you know the whole thing has been recreated. Mm-hmm. None of it is the original footage. Ooh. But it does exactly match this moment of the original footage. And so, there's something really interesting about the fact that Spielberg does that, that to me is why this is a good film. Because it is a reminder that... Even things we think of, of course, historical authenticity. That photograph is a real photograph of a moment that right. happened. That's absolutely true. But anything before and after that, right, is the story we tell ourselves. Mm-hmm. Right? And you see Spielberg kind of remind us of that. Right? He's not pretending that this is historically accurate. This is his take. Yeah. Right? And the transition from sort of the room and color to that moment. And then I think we see it in black and white on someone's screen. It is this reminder of sort of the ways in which history and narrative kind of interact. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a, it's a brilliant moment and a brilliant setup for then how he tells the story, right? He can then choose to tell yeah. the story how he wants to. He sort of set it up. This is him telling this story. I feel like that must be why he got Tony Kushner to write it. Or I don't know if that's the direction, you know, if he started it, who started it. But that's like yeah, something yeah. that comes up, the interaction of narrative and history in yes. many of his other works. Yes. Well, they worked together again on Lincoln. Kushner wrote yes. that as well. Yeah. I didn't um, see that, but I did see Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. <laughs> I have seen both of them. Oh. <laughs> I enjoyed both of them very much. Similar in terms of tone, right? (laughs) I have to say that I think, actually, the end of Lincoln should have had more in common with the very end of Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. Weirdly. By which I actually mean it should have ended before he got shot. Mm -hmm. It should have ended with us seeing him walk away. Okay. Um, That's my personal opinion about the film Lincoln. But the rest of it's amazing. Okay. It's absolutely amazing. Timely based on a book called Cabinet of Rivals or something? Oh, um, I mean, sort of, you know, 
Doris yeah. Kearns Goodwin is one of the main sources, certainly, for the movie. Because your but mom I don't... sent me that book, too. Yeah, yeah. So. Yes, it's an amazing book. Yeah. Okay, I have that yeah. around. Yeah. Um, she's one of the main Lincoln scholars. Um, there's cool. been some controversy about, did she not give enough other people credit whose work she used? Mm. But um, it's, it is still an amazing book. I want to mention that controversy. Yes. Okay. Um, but speaking of this film Munich, so <laughs> yes, we should preface all of this by saying I had not previously been to Germany. Mm-hmm. I'd actually flown through the Munich airport, so that's not a hundred percent true, but, uh, gorgeous airport, by the way, <laughs> beautiful airport. And I, I did sort of wonder what it would be like, mm-hmm. um, because when I'm white passing, but you know. Japanese also, so, um, and of course Jewish. So you do wonder, going to Germany, what what's going to happen? Yeah. <laughs> there is history there that isn't great. Um, I looked up things to do in Munich just to see what, you know, the touristy lists are. And basically, there's the list that's like all the museums, and then there's the list that's all of the Holocaust sites. Yeah. We did not go to those. Yeah. But they advertise them. They, you know, and... That's good. You want people to go to them. Then they, you want them to want people to go to them. Mm -hmm. But it's also, it's an interesting reminder. The fact that it is the anniversary of the 72 Olympics. Mm -hmm. That was also really interesting. They commemorated, they preserved that building. Like I said, they actually use all the Olympic stuff. I mean, they really, they use the park. All that stuff is gorgeous and it's amazing. Um, and good for Munich for really doing that. But yeah. also, that's a... And to be fair, in 72, I mean, that was not the fault of Germany <laughs> that that happened. Mm-hmm. But there is some sort of weird symbolism to the fact that it happened in Germany, right? You right. can't help feeling that there's something a little weirdly symbolic about the fact that it happened in Germany mm-hmm. and not at an Olympics that was somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, now, of course, the reason it happened in, was because it was 72 and what was going on in the Middle East. I mean, that's why it happened then. And it just sort of happened that that Olympic was in Munich. So it's quite possible if that Olympics had been somewhere else, it would still have happened. Right. Was the next? There was one in, like, Los Angeles. Susan. Yeah. So, question mark. But. but it, right. But it just, it doesn't quite change the symbolism. Mm-hmm. Right? It's just... You know, it's this very interesting sort of thing. So, um, so there's something about that. And the first thing I did, of course, you're in Munich. I'm a medievalist. It's, you know, what am I going to do? I go around and look at the old churches. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they're great. They're awesome. Um, they have their own sort of incredible cool stuff. Um, one of them has this, like, it's supposedly the devil's footprint. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. In the, like, entryway. Yeah. He got, he made a deal to help build the church, and then he was tricked when there were windows. <laughs> he didn't want there to be any windows. He doesn't like light, of course. Right. And so he thought there weren't any, and he was standing, because he couldn't see them from where he was standing. And he, like, stomped his oh. foot in joy, and then he, like, moved and realized that there were all these windows, and then he supposedly disappeared into a cold breeze <laughs> that still blows through the cathedral. Yeah. Okay. Which is a reminder of how Munich's weather is very much like Chicago and so on. It's, mm-hmm. you know. Anyway, um, but, (laughs) um, 
Anyway, so there are lots of fun things like that. There's, of course, there's old stuff. There's famous artists, you know, like Van Eyck's paintings and the churches and all this stuff. Um, but you also sort of wander around and you're like, oh, this bishop died in whenever is, you know, is it before or after 1930? <laughs> yes. When did he die? And he, of course, even if it's before 1930, you're like, oh, proto-Nazi, mm-hmm. right? Um you know, I mean, it's just hard not to sort of think about those things, right? Um, and then actually, uh, walking around, you know, downtown Munich, you pass a plaque that's like, yes, in this very old building, um, the council met and basically, you know, this is where Kristallnacht started. <laughs> uh, You're like, oh, okay. okay. But, you know, there's a plaque up to it. Um, anyhow, so it's, it's one of those things that's interesting. But as you wander around, um, it's really great. It is. It does remind me a lot of the Midwest. Um, as you move out of Munich, and I mean a lot of the Midwest, it's like they grow corn mm-hmm. <laughs> and all that stuff. Um, as you, the difference, of course, is kind of the roofs and the decoration. It is what we tend to think of as German, right? When you go to like a German restaurant in the Midwest, this is what it looks like. It's that kind of roof, this kind of wood carving decoration, Mm -hmm. which is really Bavarian, right? Right. Um, So that's different. And then, of course, as you get out of Munich towards, for example, Oberammergau, Mm -hmm. you're headed into the Alps, basically. Um, It's gorgeous. It looks like the Smoky Mountains. It's amazing and beautiful. This is why there's skiing. (laughs) Okay. Um, And in the winter... You know, usually in the summer, these towns are picturesque, right? Mm-hmm. They they depend on summer tourism, people who want to come see picturesque towns. But their big thing is in the winter with skiing. Skiing. Um, and okay. so all the little hotels are really ski, little ski places. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that being said, obviously, every 10 years or so, Oberammergau does their play. Yes. Oberammergau. Okay, so <laughs> this is their thing, right? They have a passion play. Yes. Um, And they've been doing it. So what happened was, this is the fun part, Mm -hmm. (laughs) is that the plague showed up in Oberammergau in the 1600s. Being the the plague plague, the Black Death. Yes, that one. Yeah, the original. The super fun. Yeah. Um, But this is is actually really... So I had planned to go in 2020, Mm -hmm. which was the 10 years. Because, okay, so when the plague showed up, they said, we'll do the play every 10 years? Yes. They it made a vow us. to God. Yes. If nobody else dies of the plague, I mean, people had already been dying. This is why right. they got scared. And so if nobody else dies of the plague, this is 1633. Um, if nobody else dies of the plague, we will do a passion play every 10 years. Forever. And from that point on, nobody died of the plague. Okay. <laughs> so um, science, of course, has explained this well by done. saying that. You know, that's because everyone who was going to die had already died. But that's, you know, who knows? Anyway. Um, so what happened is, um, yeah, they started doing it. So the first one was in 1634. Right. Immediately after. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and the point, of course, is that... Um, Essentially, it's the town who puts it on. This has always mm-hmm. been true. I mean, we definitely have talked about medieval 
plays before. The whole point, of course, is that it's the town that does it. But, you know, sometimes it's guilds. This was the thing in England, right. for example. Um, and here, of course, the point really is that this is a town civic duty, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like voting today, or whatever it is. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Jury duty, except fun. Um, <laughs> you know, but that the town the town is supposed to do it. Mm-hmm. Because that is, of course, the point. Yeah. Is that this is now a civic responsibility, because that is how the vow worked, right? So, um... This continues on, actually. This is, which is really important. So we'll talk about that in a sec. Um, but the first one, uh, supposedly 60 to 70 people were mm-hmm. in it, which is a big cast, but not really for a passion play. I mean, um, you know, in the Middle Ages, as you got through sort of like the big ones, if you think of like in England, like in York or in France, some of the big ones, these had really big casts yeah. generally so um that could easily have been a hundred people potentially even more if you're counting mm-hmm. extras and stuff so um yeah so 60 to 70 is not is a lot but not as many in some ways as it could have been right, right. but that's what you have so the first one was on pentecost um we think of corpus christi as the day that plays are done um there's a lot of truth to that, but Pentecost was one of the other big days that things that plays were done. Okay. Also Christmas, by the when way. When is Pentecost? Fifty days after Easter. Okay. So Pentecost spring, is late spring, I guess. Yes. Um it's uh fifty days after Passover. <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. So uh this we are currently so the other fun thing about this is that of course these are the this is one of the things that parallels, right? Mm-hmm. Where Christianity maintains its Jewish roots. Mm-hmm. Passover, of course, becomes Easter, but the Last Supper, of course, is a Seder, right? So Easter becomes the new Passover. That is, Christianity celebrates Easter instead of Passover. Right. And um, that's the sort of shift. Pentecost, uh, what happened was the apostles got together to celebrate Pentecost. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, oh, 50, which is to say, Penta, fifty Penta, something. Yes. Okay. Yes, the fifty days, which you count down, you start counting uh, mm-hmm. Passover, right? You start counting the Omer. You count yeah. the fifty days, um, and that is to when Moses gets the Torah, to the Ten Commandments, Lagba Omer. So. The um, the apostles get together <laughs> to celebrate the Jewish holiday, yeah, of Shavuot, basically. Oh, Shavuot. Okay, yeah, yeah. Lagba Omer is something else. Probably is it one yes. of the tree ones? I forget. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. There's so many Jewish holidays and so many holidays about trees. And um, so well, uh, it's during the counting of the Omar. Okay. Is the point. Um, Lagba Omer. I mean, that's why, that's where it gets its name. Yeah. Okay. So, skipping, skipping this confusion, the apostles um, got together to celebrate Shavuot. And yes. And now it's Pentecost, and that's when they do the play. 
<laughs> sort of. So Shavuot is, okay, so this is actually important. So for anyone who's forgotten. We also talked about the connection between Passover and Easter in episodes three and four. Yes. If you want to dive into the archives. Yes. Um, but for anyone who forgets, so one of the really important things that happens with Christianity as it moves forward into the Middle Ages and then beyond is that a lot you know, it's one of the things, of course, you are so dependent on what came before, but you also kind of want to not be dependent on that. Mm -hmm. um, Judaism, in this case. What happens is um, a superseding, right? An understanding that Christianity has superseded Judaism right. and replaced all the sort of Jewish practices with new ones. Um, but there remains this very interesting overlay, mm -hmm. right? And so that overlay is incredibly important. And passion plays usually stress it. They stress the parallels of sort of what happened before and how what happens in the New Testament is a kind of reiteration of something that happened in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. So Shavuot, or Shavuos, um, is the you know, bestowing of, I mean, the Torah, but of, I guess, I don't know, how would you say, wisdom, God's knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. Moses goes up the mountain, he gets this stuff, right? He talks to God, you know, and that this is bestowed upon the Israelites. Um, so Pentecost, what happens is the apostles get together to celebrate Shavuos, <laughs> um, and the Holy Spirit descends upon them. Okay. So basically, they now have, they don't have to commemorate what happened with Moses and what Moses then did for the Israelites. They have gotten a direct oh, line. Okay. Is this also why Pentecostals speak in tongues? Yes. And they call yeah. it being filled with the Holy Spirit. Yep. Or something. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's right. And in paintings and stuff of this, usually what you see are little tongues of fire over everyone's heads. Okay, cool. Nice. I love a yeah. good icon. Yes. So, uh, so that's what happens. So, <laughs> um, so Pentecost becomes, right, so the apostles now got that kind of direct line. Mm -hmm. So they don't have to commemorate Moses anymore. They got it direct. So what happens then is that Christianity then commemorates them with Pentecost. Mm-hmm. So it's the descent of the Holy Spirit on the apostles, as opposed to Moses talking to God and the Ten Commandments. Moses, of course, remains incredibly important, but the holiday has kind of been updated. Right. Right. Um, you know, 2.0 or whatever. <laughs> so, um, so, but that idea is incredibly important to the whole concept of Passion Plays mm -hmm. in the Middle Ages. Now, we should point out, of course, 1634, this is the early modern period. Right. Yes. So Ober Abigail is a little late in the game when it comes to passion plays. Mm -hmm. Not really. I mean, obviously, they're neighbors. People have been doing them in Germany for a long time. You know, going all the way back to, to Latin and things. I mean, so there are plenty of medieval German passion plays. Um, Do we know if they had been performing a play before the plague? Or was this like a new idea that they had come up with? Um, as a town, it's not clear that they had been performing one, no. Okay. They hadn't personally been. Right. But obviously, people in the region have been. I mean, people, you know. Sure. 
in the larger region have been. Um, they certainly, so it's interesting though, that they, that this is the idea they get because it is kind of late, mm-hmm. right? Germany has been doing this for a very long time. It's kind of petering off. Um, obviously you are starting to get like the divide Lutheran mm-hmm. Catholic. Um, so it's interesting that, that this is the thing they came up with, mm-hmm. right? To show their dedication. In some ways, it's a kind of, um, I think, reiteration of their faith of Catholicism, that they would do a passion play. This is something that now sure. would read as very Catholic. Yeah. Right? So that's their first one. And there are, you know, yeah, they aren't unique by any stretch of the imagination. Plenty of other people do passion plays, maybe not for the same reason, but <laughs> other people certainly do them. So they're not unique. Um, but they, you'll notice this is 1634. Pretty quickly, they switch it so that they're on the the decade. Okay. Right. So that's how, so this year, it should have been 2020. Of course, it ended up being 2022. Um, it was actually the 42nd. You'll notice right. it hasn't actually been quite 400 years, <laughs> but this was actually the 42nd play. Um, there were, you know, there was occasional gap because of war. They got prohibited from doing it one year. Um, hmm. You know, religious stuff. I mean, it right. is Catholic and not all of Germany is. So there was a year they were prohibited from doing it, but then they got, they were allowed to do it again. So they kind of made up for stuff. So anyway, so this was the 42nd one. Um, the... Interesting thing, of course, is the fact that they did keep doing it. So unlike regional plays, um, they that didn't have vows, presumably, to keep them going, <laughs> they really hung on to this yeah, as a thing that they needed to do. Now, it's worth pointing out, of course, that the plague does not go away, mm-hmm. right? Like, plague sticks around. You know, Shakespeare, of course, dies in 1616, but... Throughout his time as a playwright in London, occasionally the theaters would have to close in the summer because of plague. Because as we know, when things are happening like that, you can't have big gatherings of people. This is the thing we have relearned. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> um, so, times. yeah. So the fact that Obramagau keeps doing it is maybe, is partly a factor of their vow. Partly a factor that the plague, of course, doesn't go away. So it's the... It's not like the the danger doesn't quite stop. Mm-hmm. And eventually a factor of the, you know, fame. Because, of course, eventually they are kind of the only ones still doing it. When they start in the 1600s, it's not unusual. Right. But by the time you start getting into the 1700s, by the time, right, the minute someone starts to prohibit you from doing it. <laughs> yes. Then you have to keep doing it, mm-hmm. right? Um, So that helps <laughs> no doubt right um and so what ends up happening then throughout the 1800s is that not only are they still doing it because at this point you not only have the vow and the fact that occasionally they have been told they can't do it but also now you are becoming famous for doing it right right so it's actually so this is it's in the 1800s when it starts to become a kind of um i don't know a bit of a touristy thing that people are aware of Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> that obviously then also keeps them going, basically. Sure. Um, so what happens is, interestingly, in 2020, of course, there's a new plague. 
Which is sort of fascinating. Yeah. Right? The original reason for them doing it comes back around. Different plague, obviously, but nonetheless. One has to be like, how specific were you when you made your original vow, right? Well, and they postponed for two years immediately, mm-hmm. which was very smart. Yeah. <laughs> right? They didn't chance the idea that they'd be able to do it the next year. They were just like, nope, two years. So they went straight to 2022. Um, which, yeah, worked out perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, but also does really show an awareness of kind of why, why this play is done. So to me, that was something, I, I mean, I plan to go see it anyway in 2020 as a medievalist to see, you know, this is kind of the legacy of the Middle Ages. It didn't start in the Middle Ages, but it is a legacy of the Middle Ages. Right. But suddenly going to see it changed a little bit, right? Because seeing it in 2022, you are kind of seeing it in the context of why it's done. Yeah. Which is to say, as a devotional piece in a time of plague. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Which is sort of really interesting. Um, and their response to the plague in many ways does demonstrate, um, I don't know, more than just an awareness, but um, a real sort of, a very sort of... Um, I don't know, integral grasp of the importance of that fact, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, <laughs> um, from there, quick bit of history. Should point out, um, when you go to Oberammergau, very picturesque town, the whole region, as I yes. said. Gorgeous and picturesque, very picturesque. Um, lots of stuff, you know, shops for sale, things like this. Um there definitely are religious icons, but it is not an overwhelmingly religious uh, experience when you enter the town. Mm-hmm. There are signs, you know, passion play, like the posters up. But it's not like walking into Vatican City. Um, no. Okay. Interestingly. Um, although, of course, Vatican City, in fairness, you know, it's not so much that there's all that there's tons of religious shops everywhere, although there are. It's also just you know it's it's holy ground. Yeah, I mean it's very literally. I mean there's sacred a lot ground. of um, there's a lot of religious people there, which you don't see. Yes. many people like you don't see monks and nuns walking around typically in right. like in Chicago or not in the something. U.S. Yeah, right. You do in Italy, right? Um, but but actually, but that is also true at Oberammergau, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I did not see as many, you know priests or monks or nuns wandering around. I mean, I'm sure there were a lot there, but they were in plain yeah. plain clothes. Undercover. Um, yeah, basically. So you there it was not overwhelmingly religious in that sense. It's not holy ground and they don't try to make it seem like it is. Okay. Which I think is also a different point, but an important point, right? Right. Um and as I said, like and Plenty of the stores are not specifically religious in any way. They sell tons of stuff related to the play, right? You can get the the book, which I am holding right now. Um, you can get the little program. You can get, you know, tote bags, which we got. You can get a jacket, which yes. I also got. Um, you know, you could get all this stuff. But the religious icon stores are separate, and those are their things. But then there are just plenty of stores that are just there because there mm-hmm. are tourists, right? Okay. <laughs> and they're there to sell things to tourists. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Bavarian things, like awesome beer steins and stuff, right? Lots of beer steins everywhere, everywhere. Of course, yeah. Okay. Because that's, you know. Um, 
so there is so that is also very interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it is not sort of overtly religious in the ways you might expect, and particularly, um, I think something somewhere in the United States there is a basically a theme park in Orlando. Um, that's sort of the experience of the passion. And um, is this a Disney World joke that I'm missing? Or is no, no, I this is a real thing. Okay. <laughs> um, I was like, this is a very real thing. No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> it's a real thing. No, no, it's the Holy Land experience. And um, I'm not surprised, America, but I'm a little disappointed. I don't know. Um, and I have friends who are medievalists who've been there. Okay. Um, and sort of compared it to, you know, medieval passion plays. Um. How does it compare to that great bastion of, uh, historical knowledge medieval times in Rosemont? (laughs) That's a good question. I don't know. Um, I think it says online that the Holy Land experience has been permanently closed. (gasps) Oh, no. (laughs) I know. Um, so, yeah, I guess they have permanently closed. Okay. Um, but I had I had meant to go there. There was a conference in Orlando at some point, and I ended up not going to that conference. Why? Something. Um, but, you know, it, that was very, very different, just based on the experience of people who were there, yes. from what this is. Okay. Right? And partly, this has the legacy of history behind it, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's not 400 years, but it's close. It's coming up on 400 years. It's what, 390, 389 years? Yes. So it's coming up on 400 years. 88, I guess. 34. Okay. Um, so it's coming up on 400 years. So it's the weight of history. Um, it is the legacy of that. It's the vow, right? Mm-hmm. What this is supposed to do. Um but it's also very much the history of Germany, right? Hmm. To me, I think there was something sort of very important <laughs> about the fact that um, over the past 20 years or so, since the 80s, they've been working on making it very not anti-Semitic. I mean, they've been working on it before, Good. but they have been putting in a lot of work since the 80s. Okay. But particularly the past, since 2000, I think, since the 2001. Okay. Um, and this, this is a responsibility that they take very, very, very seriously. <laughs> right? So the weight of history is not just the 400 years, the vow, the plague, what this is supposed to mean in a time of disease, right? Mm-hmm. What it's sort of supposed to stand for. Which are the sort of things we hope religion does stand for, right? Which is like hope and healing, healing from trauma, all that stuff. Right. Um, it's also very much, I think, and uh, not exactly unspoken, because when you go there the in the lobby, it's all outdoors, of course, but mm-hmm. they do have this, they built this theater. It's the biggest covered outdoor theater. So it's basically a giant airplane hangar. <laughs> it's open yes. at the ends. It's like if the Hollywood Bowl were covered, basically. Okay. Um, it I think 4,500 people fit inside. And it was full. But it, even though you could kind of tell how many people were there, it never actually felt as crowded as it, you'd think with that okay. many people. It was really astonishingly well organized. 
um, and there's like a dinner break and they just, you know, you hop on the bus to get to mm-hmm. where your dinner is and amazingly well organized, I gotta say. Anyway, the lines for the bathrooms were never terrible. How long was it? Um, it It's supposed to be five hours. It went 15 minutes over in the, the second half, which is fine. Um, so it's, okay. it's, it was, um, from 2.30 to 5, three-hour dinner break, and then from 8 to 10.45. Which okay. actually isn't bad. I mean, Wagner is that long without the three-hour dinner break, <laughs> right? <laughs> you get like a half yes. hour at the Met, because some people eat dinner, but yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, that's fine. Um, but... Um, it's like most of a yeah. Philip Glass opera. Um, so the... The sort of the building, it does have the sort of lobby though, um, and they have up the history of the passion, right? The history of their play, and they mm-hmm. do not skip on the World War II part. Um, it was very much seen as propaganda <laughs> for World War II. Oh. Um, yeah, in ways that are not great, obviously, but they're they're very open about it. Um, more than that, before World War II. The cast of Obermagow had toured the U.S. and various other places as a way of trying to um, reconcile, you know, the allies <laughs> to Germany after World War One, Right? Um, because yes. Germany, of course, was on the other side both times. <laughs> and got super duper, like, yes. hammered. In the settlements yes. after and World War and that's War. part of what led to World War II. Um, but not exclusively, but partly, of course. Uh, you know, Germans, Germany's um, yes. em- empire ambitions, arguably, right? Their imperial mm-hmm. desire. You know, and now they've, they've got it. They're the head of the EU. England left in a fit of peak. Germany, <laughs> Germany really basically has ones. what they wanted all along. Yes, which is the joke, of yeah. course. And all they needed, all they needed yes, was Angela exactly. Merkel. Um, yeah, which is funny. But anyway, so, th- I mean, but that, that is kind of the, the joke that people make about it. Um, that after all of that, right, mm-hmm. this is, they got it. But, <laughs> but to be fair, you know, um, it, it was a great, it was very nice. Germany is very nice. It was a nice place to visit. Um, so that, the weight of that history is very important. And, it's the the um, reminder of the fact that <laughs> this isn't explicitly stated, but how sort of important it was kind of as propaganda during World War II, anti-Jewish propaganda, um, is, is embedded in its history and the history of it as a town. So this is another thing, right? I figured out pretty quickly that Munich was great and awesome. And mm-hmm. uh, I will say at the hotel... There was a point at which I saw two people in the, leaving the elevator where I was kind of like, those two people look like white supremacists who have come to visit Germany for the wrong reasons. <laughs> oh, but no. that was the only time that happened. Otherwise, okay. you know, Germany is very diverse. It's incredibly diverse for all sorts of reasons. But one of those reasons is the American military. Um, a lot mm-hmm. of... Not a lot, but I mean... I guess maybe a surprising number. I don't know if it's surprising, but a number that is higher than you might think <laughs> of African-Americans who have been in the military and stationed in Germany stay or move back. Oh, yeah. Okay. 
I was going to say, like, I know that the base there must be pretty big because I've met, like, I don't know, say I've met 10 military people or military adjacent people in my life, and, like, probably half of them were in yes. Germany at some point. Yeah, I met a lot. You know? So, like, it's a lot um, of uh, a yeah, lot. Yeah, and particularly, like, in Virginia, there. of course, a lot of people around here are military or ex-military because it's Virginia. Um, yes, everybody yeah. goes through Germany. <laughs> I mean... Not literally, but it does seem that way. Yes. Um, yeah. But it is a place people go back, right? And it's a sort of interesting reminder, African-Americans in Germany today, as in France frequently, mm -hmm. can have very different experiences in Europe than they do in the U.S., right? Even countries that can be very racist mm -hmm. frequently treat African-Americans differently. Yeah, I've heard stories about that dating back even oh, to like Oh, famously, that's II. why everyone ended up in Paris. Mm -hmm. Richard Wright, James Baldwin. Yeah. yeah. Josephine Baker. I do not blame yeah. them. Would 100% yes. go to Paris. I'm not, I mean, like, right. I'm not African American, but yeah. I would well, go there anyway. A lot of Jews ended up there as well, for sure. <laughs> yes. Political this activists. This is my dream. I will have a cold water flat in Paris. Yeah. And write novels. Tristan Zara. And... You know, all of them. Yes. I mean, you know, UNESCO, even just people who were politically active, you know, realized pretty quickly that they'd get arrested at home and they'd move, they'd go back to Paris or they'd, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Hemingway was yeah. there. So. Sorry. He, he liberated yes. a bookstore one time. <laughs> it's a machine gun. Um, but anyway. So the, you know, the sort of interesting aspect of um, this, this, uh, right, this part of the history. So that. Um, Germany today mm -hmm. is very diverse in, you know, all sorts of great ways, um, and very mindful of its history. <laughs> um, yes, there are laws, yes. very strict laws in Germany about yes. Holocaust denial that do, like, the U.S. has nothing. Yeah. Like, <laughs> we're very, we're very comparatively stupid well, on the top. you know. To be honest. First Amendment and things. But we we do have issues in various ways. Mm. Um, you know, it's not... The, th the thing is, of course, it's not that we need to outlaw Holocaust denial. It's that we need to not pretend that there are two sides. Right? Right. That's the thing. <laughs> sometimes there aren't two sides. Sometimes there are many more than two. But sometimes there is only one yeah. side. Right? Um, and the other side should not get a say. Like, that's just a thing. Right. And that's what we need to work on. Elliptically, this is why I've decided to stop arguing with strangers about Heidegger on the internet. <laughs> yes. Thumbs up. Um, but, but okay. yeah, so, so Germany, right, um, very quickly, like, it was really awesome. Um, I was there for one sort of night before Keith came in and sort of wasn't sure, but then started to like it a lot and then you know we wandered around munich and stuff um and you know it's not it's not it's still not as diverse as the u.s but we saw other mixed race mm -hmm. couples and stuff um and it very friendly very welcoming very open you know so munich was great so heading off to Oberammergau. okay so i was like munich is great but of course that's munich chicago is great but some of the suburbs aren't <laughs> how do i know what type of suburb right. Oberammergau is Particularly because, um, sort of famously, during World War II, the U.S., there were, there were actually people in the U.S. who were like, um, 
you know, Oberammergau, remember how they came through with their play? Well, the cast came through, they sort of talked about it. Mm -hmm. These are people of faith. Um, They are no doubt in the resistance, holding strong, blah, blah, blah. And it turned out afterwards (laughs) that Oberammergau had a surprisingly high percentage of people who joined the party. Uh-huh. So not just, you know, like a high percentage of people from Oberammergau joined the party. And um, mm-hmm. more than that, only one person joined the resistance. Oh, guys. Okay. And famously, that person is the guy who played Judas in the Passion Play. What? Yes. No! Yes. Okay. Um, and he was asked <laughs> about it, you know, at some point after the war. Um, and of course, and he was, he was very polite about it. He, he just said something like, you know, you can't say why one person does and someone else doesn't. And he did say, you know, you might think if Judas joined the resistance, Jesus would as well, but you can't say or something like that. Um, <laughs> but that was, of course, the question. That was really the question, right? Yeah. Right. And there is something interesting about that. Now, it's worth pointing out, um, that Oberon Miguel has for a long time, I think, even before had a very interesting sort of take on Jesus. And this is um, medieval as well, right? Um, medieval mm-hmm. Jesus and medieval Judas are frequently much more interesting than you would think. Uh, which is to say, I mean, you know, Jesus in some ways is always a little bit revolutionary if you're going to give him all of his speeches about the poor, because... Yeah, all the table flipping and the yes. chasing people with whips and the well, you know. just the you know, turn the other cheek. I mean, all that stuff. It's it's always been a little yeah. bit revolutionary, um, and makes me think, of course, of Good Omens, where the the film version, I mean, the TV version, <laughs> where they're oh yes, at the, what did he say? Everybody yes. should be nice they, to one another. Yeah, and David yeah. says, "Oh, that explains it." Yeah, um, yeah. It's also the beginning of. Um, one of the Hitchhiker's Guidebooks, right? Where it says, 2,000 years after a man had been nailed to a tree for suggesting that people ought yes. to be nice to one another. Yes. Yeah. So um, that has always been a bit revolutionary, right? Um, but yeah. uh, another side of it that does absolutely exist in the Middle Ages as well is thinking through Judas's motivations, and making him seem sort of a little more human as well, and also um, more of a political adversary than just someone who's evil. Right? Yeah. Yeah, so what was his um, deal? Well, this is interesting, because the, so the current, so getting to Oberammergau, right, I wasn't sure, but once you get there and you realize, mm-hmm. like, you almost, like, you see a poster for the play, and then, like, that's it, and you're like, uh, and it's like theater that way. And then you start, you know, you see the stuff in the gift shops or whatever. You're like, oh, yes, I'm in the right place. But like I said, yeah. it's not overwhelming. Okay. It is not overt. And that turns out to be very much by design. Um, so mm-hmm. I guess Muslim inhabitants of Oberammergau started performing, I think, in the 2020 production. Yeah. Um, oh, there were okay. some black performers on stage in the sort of crowd scenes right. and such. Um, this has a cast of. I don't even know, but definitely, I'm going to say 150 people or something. It has a whole chorus that's separate. Wow. This is getting into, like, Broadway yes. side. the chorus, the production. music is very much kind of derivative of Bach, St. Matthew Passion, but is composed by okay. people in the town, or I think, you know. Um, 
and and has been around for like they've been working on the music for a very long time. I mean, so mm-hmm. it's been worked on. So when I say derivative of Bach, yes. I mean it is, but also it was originally composed a lot closer to because his. That was his yeah. style. Yeah, <laughs> but it has been obviously changed and altered since. And I think the current composer, I think, is sort of credited as the composer. So, um, you know. Hmm. But anyway, so um, the the take. What happens is, first of all, it it begins and ends kind of with um, a narrator telling us the story. I mean, that's how it begins. Mm-hmm. It doesn't quite end this way. But um, it begins with the narrator telling us that, you know, the people of Omar Abigail made this vow. And that that's why they're doing the play. So then, then they start. Okay. Um, and so um, the opening, it turns out, this is something that they've been working on sort of for the past, in the past couple versions, like since 2020, 2010, um, that the... The parts of the play um, that would initially have been, you know, a passion plays frequently were were actually cycle plays, not just passion plays. A lot of times they did the whole history mm-hmm. of the world, right? From right the creation of the world. We talked a little bit about some yeah. of those before. And what this play does is, um, they have the chorus will come out and sing about something mm-hmm. from the Old Testament, and there will be a tableau. A t- tableau vivant. Oh. Which is brilliant, because that's a very okay. medieval slash early modern art form, the idea of a tableau. Plenty of places mm-hmm. that didn't necessarily do full plays would do floats that they would carry through the streets, where there would be, you know, living people doing a tableau. And so what happens is, throughout the play, there are moments after a scene where the chorus will come out and sing about whoever... Daniel in the lion den, and then you'll the sort of a curtain will open and you'll see the tableau, mm-hmm. and nice. that's the way of doing this this overlay, right? The parallels between the Old Testament and the New mm-hmm. Testament. Um, so of course Isaac, right? The binding of Isaac. Abraham, of course, is told not to kill his son. Ultimately, that's the Old Testament. Ultimately, God will kill his son or sacrifice him, right? That's the New Testament, right? And Jesus. Um, but, but all those parallels, right? Of course, Daniel and the Lion's Den is another famous parallel. Um, so these tableaus would happen, which was really fantastic. Um, and in the book that you can get to go with it that we got, they talk a little bit about how they have really centered those, um, as the chorus sings. And this is a way of kind of both preserving the history and the legacy and this sort of specific art form that is very medieval mm-hmm. slash early modern. Um, but also one of the things actually the director said is that they, that apparently there used to be more narration where someone would like tell you about it and they took all that out. So it's just the yeah. chorus singing this kind of allegorical stuff. Okay. Um, not explaining it. And that, that is apparently the point. They don't want it to be told to you that he doesn't want it to be a sermon he wants it to be open to the audience's interpretation, right? If you are of the sort of religious mm. bent where you okay. see this as a direct parallel, great. If you don't, that's fine. Who cares, right? It's up to the audience. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And to me, that whole, that shift, that this is not seen 
interestingly, as a morality play. It's a passion play because, of course, it's about the passion. <laughs> but it's not a morality yeah. play. It's not a sermon. It is up to the audience to take what they want to take. That is a huge part of the shift. A really important mm -hmm. part of the shift of making this not anti-Semitic. <laughs> um, because uh -huh. it yes. means that they're not trying to sort of impose a meaning upon this. So that's one of the things that happened. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is that everyone in the play, with the exception of Pilate and Longinus, who is a Roman soldier, who is sort of Pilate's mm -hmm. second in the play, everyone else is Jewish. Everyone else is played as Jewish. Really? That And that's it. Okay. And that's, I think, part of a shift they made also around 2020 mm -hmm. or so. Um, or maybe even 2010. Um, because they, they had a, an exhibit on costumes and they had pasted mm. the outside of the building where this exhibit was with all of the old costumes from previous, the previous year. Okay. Um, and so this, this looks specifically, I think, but I think the shift started maybe in 2010. Um, but just, so everybody else is Jewish. The only okay. person who uses the word Jew is Pilate. Maybe Longinus does at one point, but really Pilate. He doesn't use it a lot, okay. but when he does, it really landed. <laughs> it was clearly supposed hmm. to. He looked yes. somewhat like an SS officer, just vaguely, right? Everyone else is very much in like, oh, you know, okay. what we would consider kind of Middle Eastern, I mean, sort of ancient Middle Eastern. I mean, they all look like Middle Eastern peasants, so they're just basically in robes. They're okay. all basically in robes. <laughs> You know, it, it looks okay. good. I mean, it does look, you know, not exactly first century, but um, they're not they're not trying to be exactly historically accurate, but not modern, mm -hmm. right? Um, Very like, little life of basically life of that is Brian, basically what they all look honest. like. Yeah, yeah. Um, high quality costumes, I gotta say. But um, yeah, so that's what they look like. Uh, but Pilot very much looks. He's like sort of modern dark fascist soldier dress right so um he's okay. you know uniformed he's got the boots you know oh uh, they key and longinus came on riding horses there are a lot of live animals this part was fantastic <laughs> very medieval <laughs> slash early modern they did love they did love wow. animals francis okay. famously used animals um so that part was fun yeah they came on riding horses pilot dismounts um herod came on riding a horse there were real sheep and goats. It was amazing. Um, when Jesus was doing the flipping of stuff, he breaks this jug that apparently they like piece together later and everybody signs it. And it's like a charity thing. But um, but he breaks oh. this jug. He okay. does this stuff and he, you know, kicks a basket, whatever. And someone sort of in the crowd, when he starts breaking stuff, clearly opens something and all these doves fly out. <laughs> yeah. Oh. So that was nice and symbolic okay. and lovely. Um, I assume that they're trained or something to come back because, you know. Um, but anyway. Yes. So, um, or to go home, I suppose, is what they do, right? They And then they get brought back to the theater. <laughs> and then they do it again tomorrow. They're not just catching a bunch of pigeons. Definitely not. No, no. These are... From like that, no. Somewhere, you know, they put down a these basket were nice, of these nice, nice white doves. Throw that were it on. Definitely nice white okay. doves that I believe are trained. Yeah. Um. The, but right. the, even with Herod, he actually came on with two small camels. 
Yeah, we're so cute. What? Super adorable. Okay. Um, none of the animals stayed around on stage very long. I mean, because then someone would take them off. But anyway, this is phenomenal. Right. Um, but anyway, so everyone else has played as Jewish, except, yeah, Pilot and Longinus have this sort of SS look to them. And when Pilot says, you know, <laughs> Juden, it, it's clearly supposed to land. He knows it. The audience knows it. You could feel mm. it. Um, okay. so there was some, so they, that was very aware, right? There's, so this, this is not like the, what is it? That scene in the passion of the Christ where David Bowie plays yes. pilots and he's just like, so you're the right. king of the Jews. No. Um, and <laughs> actually, interesting. I just want to give a shout out. Pilot was a very good actor. Um, everyone is from the town. Yeah. Um, in the second half, we saw, um, our bus driver from the morning, in one of the buses we took, um, in the chorus. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Um, cool. Yes. But, um, everyone's from the town. The major roles are all double cast because, you know, various reasons. People have jobs, basically. (laughs) Um, yeah. But, um, so are they doing one performance every 10 years or is it like a couple over the summer or? Um, they, well, they do the two halves. Every day that they perform, they do both Mm -hmm. halves. You can see the whole thing in okay. one day, which is what we did, or you can choose to see, like, one half one day and come back for the next half the next day. Um, they perform mm-hmm. every day except Mondays and Wednesdays. I think it's from, okay. like, May to October or something. Yeah. Wow. Okay, that's a long run, and now I kind of get why they're, yes. like, every ten years. Oh, it's a huge... Holy cow. It is a huge thing. It's enormous it's astonishing yeah. i mean they have it so well planned it's astonishing but the fact that the town does this is astonishing i mean yeah it's astonishing but um i want so uh pilot was a very good actor um herod was fantastic he was 100 percent amazing he was also okay exactly what the middle ages describes herod as sometimes now Shakespeare famously describes him as very sort of bombastic and yelling. But another description mm-hmm. of him from the Middle Ages, I mean, Shakespeare is, of course, early modern, not medieval. A description of Herod from the Middle Ages suggests that he would have a very high voice. And sort of implies that oh. he was played as kind of effeminate. Hmm. Um, well, this Herod, he was a big guy. And he mm-hmm. was just phenomenal. He was he was loud. He was great. But he was absolutely he was sassy. <laughs> he giggled. <laughs> I mean, he was sort of okay. He really reveled in his role as kind of the you know luxurious, you know, fat cat king basically, who's just rich and has mm-hmm. too much stuff and giggles and you know, he was just phenomenal. It's good to be the king. He was phenomenal. He was great, yeah. but he also played it in this way that is very much how it's described in the Middle Ages, um, which is really sort of interesting. Um, and is is very much, I think, a commentary on on wealth, basically, right? On sort of the idea of wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to say that even though I use the word effeminate, that is sort of how it's described in the Middle Middle Ages and the medieval version. Um, is there something homophobic about that version? Um and maybe it's not clear, uh, you know, because he, he would not obviously have been um, a eunuch or anything. So it's not implying that, but maybe mm-hmm. something about, you know, I mean, about Jewish men, about whatever, maybe. That is not how this actor played it. 
Um, he just right. played it as, I mean, a phenomenal sort of larger than life, rich guy who, you know, giggled at things that he definitely should not be laughing at because they're not really funny. And, you know, he was just great. Mm-hmm. He was great. Um, so I very much enjoyed that take. But the other, the thing that happened was because everyone is played as Jewish, as you start to get towards the controversy, right? Um, are you going to release Judas? I mean, Judas. Are you going to release Jesus or Barabbas, right? Um, Barabbas. So the debate there. Anytime there was a debate, you had this giant mob on stage. They're all very clearly Jewish. Um, and they're yelling at each other. They, it was brilliant. <laughs> they managed to stop just short of it being stereotypical. Right? But of okay. course, in the back of my head, I'm like, one step further, and this would be a Mel Brooks scene. But also, yeah. Yeah. The, the interesting thing is, what would have made it stereotypical if they'd gone any further would have been the fact that this is being done by Germans and not by Jews. Jews would have mm-hmm. sent it further into Mel Brooks' territory. Oh, yeah. And then it yeah. would have been a stereotype, but it would have been a stereotype done by Jews, which is different. <laughs> So they did not do that. They absolutely they stopped short of that. But that was in the back of my mind. Mm-hmm. Right? But instead what okay. happened was they were absolutely yelling at each other. There were times it got really loud. You know, they'd be yelling. But it was always very sort of controlled mm-hmm. in a way. Which is how they, right? Because they clearly were... Ma- yes, more well, German. they yeah. clearly were making sure that it didn't tip over into that stereotypical territory of the kind of Mel Brooks Jewish debate. Where everyone's just yelling at each other. Right. Well, right. Because, like, in the Mel Brooks version, you know there's going to be, yes, like, a pie exactly. fight or something. Yes. Right? Yes. Because we've seen... I've seen this movie. I've been in yes. this room. Exactly. And it's, like, a passion play no. is not a comedy, I think. But also... I'm pretty sure. What's funny is that it was much more sedate. Even when it got louder, it was more sedate than it would have been, of course, in real life. And you're right mm-hmm. that you could say there's something sort of maybe German about that. But really... Again, it's a reminder of that that legacy, right? The weight of that history that's on them. You can only go so far, mm-hmm. right? Um, now, the final thing is, so Judas in this play was very much the take of Judas as a revolutionary who wanted to fight. Um, okay. And is angry that Jesus is for peace. And so mm. turns him in because of that. Um, but then is shocked at kind of the betrayal that they want to kill him and therefore commit suicide. Now, a lot of this really is medieval tradition. There is medieval tradition to be found that interprets Judas in this way. Modern history actually has kind of gone back to interpret Judas in this way as well. Interestingly, because this, you know, was a German production and not an American production where you would not be allowed to do this, Judas hooked himself up to the harness before he committed suicide because Judas famously hangs himself and oh, he was alone on stage, yes. and he goes back and he puts the noose over his neck, and you could see him reach back, you know, like he was tying a necklace. But oh, clearly he's hooking himself up yes. to the harness. You would not be allowed to do that in the U.S. Like, you you would have to have a stagehand. Oh, because of yeah. safety regulations. Yeah. Um, but he, he okay. did it himself, and he, he was fine. So <laughs> I just want to... Um, but that was amazing. Okay. Anyway, um, but... Yeah, but that it's but they cast. did that really well. <laughs> it is actually double cast. But they did that really okay. well. Um because he was very much right. He's the revolutionary. He's so angry. He thought Jesus was going to kick the Romans out of Israel. He's preaches mm-hmm. peace, right? All that stuff. Um and so the hence the betrayal 
But they also very much played up the fact that J- Jesus knows he's going to and needs him to. Right? Somebody has to betray him mm-hmm. because he has to be sacrificed. That is the whole point. Right. Um, and then Judas's horror at kind of what happens and then the suicide. So uh, that was all done really well. What was interesting to me is that usually the political aspect is between Judas and Jesus and Pilate. Interestingly, mm-hmm. um, the priests were added to that. So Caiaphas was played as the head, the head priest. I mean, he is he and Annas and Caiaphas are the two head priests. But Caiaphas was really the, the main one here. He he had an angle I hadn't seen before or read before, which is you started to realize that the reason he did this was because he saw the chance to try and get Pilate in trouble. Right? Ooh, By making Pilate okay. condemn Jesus, a guy who's basically innocent, you saw the risk of Pilate doing something that would anger Rome or just get people mad at him, cause uprisings, cause trouble. Mm-hmm. And that Caiaphas is trying to break the hold of Pilate's power. Right? And basically he sees this as a way to do it. Okay. Um, and that, you know, maybe if Jesus had actually been willing to violently kick out the Romans, that would have been fine. But... The, but so what it does is makes Caiaphas this really kind of slippery political character, which was fascinating. Right? Usually, yes. of course, he's basically evil, sometimes more evil than Judas, really. Um, he's rarely given a motive, mm-hmm. you know, or he's just kind of complicit in the power structure. He's a kind of hanger on. I mean, there are a lot of things, but this was a very new take. Yeah. It was really interesting. And it gave it the sort of three pronged um, political. Debate, basically, right? Judas's point of view, kick out the Romans. Yeah. Jesus's point of view, um, there's all this other stuff you need to do first. Why are you worrying about the Romans, right? You got to feed the hungry and the sick and be good to people and be nice to people and help people who are in prison, right? And eventually you can worry about overthrowing them, but take care of yourselves first. Um, right. And then, right, violence is not the answer, all that stuff, right? I will say they also, all of that, was really pointed. I mean, they, Jesus said all that stuff mm. front and center. And of course, especially as an American sitting there thinking about like violence is not the answer. All uh, stuff. Anyway. Oh boy. But then for Caiaphas to sort of be seeing this as a way to get Pilate in trouble. And you saw Pilate sort of realize that that's what Caiaphas is doing. So all of that was really yeah. interesting. That was all really interesting. I had not seen that before. Um, and as I said, then you sort of start to see what they have done to take out the anti-Semitism. So it really becomes very much Pilate is the only one who you, who throws the word Jew around. Um, mm-hmm. And that's clearly very pointed. And then, you know, there's the sort of political stuff going on in the community who are Jewish trying to figure out what you're going to do. And of course that itself is a really interesting sort of take, right? What are you going to do when you're sort of mm-hmm. under the foot of, these guys. It mirrors a lot of stuff that really happened, of course. I mean, there were people who were complicit and all the stuff about that they may have just discovered, but really they kind of always knew, apparently, who turned in the Franks. Yeah, it was Oh, Jewish. really? Apparently. apparently Otto Frank always thought so. And people have defended this guy and been like, no, it wasn't really him, but a new book kind of came out and said, no, it really was him. Um, you know, yeah. But I think Boy. a lot of it's because kind okay. of the, com- the idea of complicity. Anyway, so so all of that, very interesting. And then, of course, you get the end, which is the whole point. I mean, this takes up a good, 
like I said, they did run 15 minutes over. This takes up a big chunk of what you do, Mm -hmm. which is the actual (laughs) passion part of it. (laughs) Um, I do want to say there are some really other interesting takes. So at the Last Supper, they brought out um, a menorah, not a Hanukkiah, right? That is But just a a clearly Jewish candelabra. (laughs) And popped it on the table and lit it. Jesus said all the blessings, so he, like, did the hamotzi and the kiddush. Um, in Hebrew. Thank goodness. He did it right. He okay. got it. I mean, I was listening. Yep. Nice. So, you know, they, they added a chunk of Hebrew. <laughs> it was really fun. Um, the Shema. They added the Shema. Um, so, you, so they really as embraced all of that. Um, yeah. And then the passion. So, you know, you definitely got the blood. He's whipped. He's beaten. All of that. But not super overboard. Enough to get the point across to sort of really, but not overboard. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, they definitely, you don't, and you don't need to. I mean, it's hard to watch someone get beat up on stage. Like, <laughs> it is tough. Um, right. And then, right, so Jesus and the two thieves come out carrying their crosses. This choreography was amazing because, so Jesus is carrying his cross, and then somebody, you know, who sort of is, wants to help him, this is, of course, part of the story as well, all the way back to the Middle Ages, um, is given his his cross to bear. Haha. <laughs> is told to carry Jesus' cross for him. Uh-huh. Right? What that did, in this case, it, it is part of the story. But in practical staging terms, it meant that Jesus gets to stay on stage and talk to, like, Veronica and people like that, while the guy, Simon, who's carrying his cross, takes it off stage and around and back up stage so that they can situate it for the raising, right? While Jesus mm, is up front talking right. to us and not having to worry about that. Meanwhile, one of the thieves okay. basically just stayed stage right, and the other thief quickly carries his across to stage left. So they're all three spread across the stage, mm-hmm. with Jesus is now in the middle, thanks to the guy playing Simon. Um, and... When it's time, they lay all three down. They nail them, in quotes. Obviously, they did not actually do that. Um, And then they're clearly all set up in front of kind of, um, you know, pits in the stage, basically. They got ropes tied to them. Oh, okay. And they pull them up. This is what they did in the Middle Ages as well. They would pull them up, similarly, and they'd drop into the peg or the hole, whatever it is. But they got this sure. down. Because there are those guys are out of the cross when they do this. Right? So you got three of them going okay. up at the same time. They pull them up with the ropes. In wow. they go. Boom. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you get the last scene. Uh, the good thief who's like, you know, I believe in you, save me. And he's like, you'll be in heaven with me before the end of the day. <laughs> okay. Yes. Um, they die. Longinus on his horse trots across the stage and pokes Jesus with his spear. Ah, and a horse. Okay. Yeah, retractable spear. I just want to say. But it looks okay. real. I mean, it yes. looks like he's stabbing him. You could hear some gasps. Yes. Um, and I want to say, you didn't you didn't hear a lot. You heard a little sniffling. You heard some stuff. But there was not, like, an outbreak. It's all very subdued and very muted in ways that were very interesting. Um, so then, the they put up ladders against the two thieves who are both small, small men. <laughs> um, bigger guys go up the ladders, hoist them, 
carry them down. Yes. That's a thing. Okay. Hire the firefighters for that one, I guess. Well, the fire department was genuinely there. So quite possibly, oh, okay. yes, as a matter of fact. <laughs> yes. A hundred percent. Absolutely. The fire department was mostly directing traffic. But yeah, I think two of them probably were those guys, because that is the thing you have to do as a firefighter. And yes. Yeah. So for Jesus, then, who, of course, is still in the center, some more talk. What are we going to do? They lay out the shroud at the bottom. Um, they had this white silk, like circus silks. Mm-hmm. Someone went up a ladder behind the cross and draped it over the cross in a way that looks very much like the paintings with cherubs. No cherubs, but the silk draped around it. Right. Okay. But also put it under Jesus in a way that then they just lowered him on the silk. Like circus arts. Oh, okay. And then once he was lowered far enough, they sort of took him and then they just left up the silk. So it's draped just like the paintings around the cross. Okay. Right? And they lay him down in the shroud. They carry him off. Um, and then the final scene um, were so they had sort of all these candles that come out. All, people come out with candles mm-hmm. on stage and the an angel has like a this guy who you slowly start to realize is an angel. Also, because in the book it said he was. But um, uh, he comes forward. He oh, also played the okay. angel in some of the tableaus where there was an angel. And then he, so he goes forward. He has this like okay. uh, iron pan with fire. Like a big wok with fire, you know. A sort of like okay. carryable okay. fire pit. Um, and he's sort of with it. And they're sort of lighting candles and stuff. And, um, and then eventually the Marys come on. The Magdalene talks to him. Finds out that Jesus, right, we get that whole thing. She gets a, the final line of the play, mm-hmm. as she should. The women did not have big roles in this, which is interestingly not... The the Virgin did have a good um, planktus. She did have a good speech of mourning. Um, and that's when you started to hear people crying, which is very medieval. Oh. Right? That they would start okay. crying when they heard her. Yeah. Because um, that is the, the moment, right? Um, but then the Magdalene did get the last word, which was brilliant. Um, and then the choir comes out and sings while the candles are lit from the angel's flame. And then that was the end. And it was gorgeous. The the crosses, of course, are still up because that's the point. And also, <laughs> I don't know what it takes to get them down, but something right. for sure. Um, but yeah, so I was glad to see the Magdalene did get the final word. Um it was nice, uh, yeah, that the Virgin's planktus, it wasn't super long, but it was very good, and that that sort of started some of the sniffles. Right, that's that's very medieval. Um, but overall, it was yeah. actually really good. It was a really good performance. It was really fun to watch. The music was great. The whole thing was really nice. It was a kind of religious experience, right? Um, just very sort of, you know, it's been a your couple years of trauma, right? And so to go see this thing, right? This is a play about a guy who absolutely really, you know, who's willing to die because he for what he believes in, basically. (laughs) Right. Which is that everyone should Mm -hmm. be less violent. And there's something great about that. And particularly, I think the ways in which everyone was very muted around us Um, and the conversations we had with the people next to us, the people literally sitting next to us, German, German couple. um, They have been to like all of the national parks in the U.S., This is what they do on vacation. So what they do on vacation. Okay. (laughs) I mean, they live in Bavaria where there are Alps, but what they do on vacation is go to places like Yellowstone and Alaska and stuff. And they drive around in like an RV up through Vancouver and down through 
the redwoods and you know like that's what they do on vacation um and then we met the couple in front of us in front of us and like over a couple um at the bus stop coming back after dinner for the second half and it turned out they they'd been in front of us the first half too but we hadn't met them yet um Mm -hmm. and you know we just chatted there was Basically, everyone wants to know where you're from. You're like, Chicago. And they're like, oh, Chicago. Um, and then... <laughs> were they like all of those Italians who are like, oh, Al Capone? <laughs> no, because that is not, of course, how Germans think of Chicago. Right? That's how Italians think uh-huh. of Chicago. Yes. Um, and Bulgarians, actually. Yes. Bulgarians are very... They There's a really famous book about Chicago in the 20s in Bulgaria. So that is also... They also think of the gangsters. <laughs> but... Okay. No. Germans, of course... I mean think of Chicago as where lots of their family went. Chicago, Milwaukee, etc. Right? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. But interestingly, when we first were headed down, we realized we'd missed the bus to take us into town. Like, we got to our hotel, we missed the bus to take us back into town, and we had to get there for lunch before the play. We had lunch set up. And so we weren't sure how we'd get there, yeah. and we went into a hotel nearby, the bus stop, and we're like, can we get a taxi but of course it's a tiny little area they don't have a lot of taxis and this couple it turned out to be a son and his mother um but this guy is like oh we can take you and Mm -hmm. they did um because they were driving into town and they're german um and had just you know driven in for the play and um the i guess his aunt his mother's sister lives in florida and we're like oh that's nice and she was like, no, too hot. Because, <laughs> of course, we're talking Bavaria, <laughs> where the weather is basically like Chicago, except certainly in that part of Bavaria, I don't know if it ever gets quite as hot. Um, yeah. But, you know, that's why everyone moved to, like, Chicago and Milwaukee, because that's the weather, right? Um, you want winters that are yeah. super cold, because <laughs> that's what you know. You want snow, because that's what you know. Um, so Florida is not... Anyway, but anyhow, but, you know, just the fact, like, they drove us in and we just talked about, like, where were we from and what did we do and what did they do? Um, and that's sort of how everybody was, right? So there was, I didn't, I don't think I heard anyone mention God ever, except yeah. obviously on stage, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is not something that would have happened, I think, anywhere else. I mean, at least not in the US. Yeah. Not here. Um, no. It just wasn't part of it and it's it's something else that's very interesting almost as though right that the religious experience is seen as very private even though it's also clearly mm-hmm. very communal and that i think is something yeah. that is because for the middle ages of course it's incredibly communal this is something that has that is part of the legacy of world war ii for germans right that um mm-hmm. that <laughs> that fear almost of that fervor right the f- the religious fervor that you, yes. you cannot go that far, right? Because of what happened when when you did, basically. But yeah, so there are ways in which it does seem to me to be very reminiscent of the Middle Ages, I think, in a lot of ways. In the ways in which it is political, in the ways in which it very much responds to today, um, which they're very proud of. They say, like, this is a living play, and it absolutely is, and that was true in the Middle Ages, right? These were stories about their own time, in which they saw their own political allegories. It wasn't, quote-unquote, just a religious experience. So in all of those ways, it's very medieval. 
And there were things about it that were also very medieval, like the tableaus and the Herod and things, you know. Um, but in other ways, that sort of fear of the fervor, the ways in which the religiosity is incredibly subdued, a lot of that is the legacy, mm-hmm. I think, of World War II. Um, so it's this, it is this interesting mix of those of those things. Yeah. But it was actually great. <laughs> it was really great. Um, you know, Keith, of course, came along. He is a theater scholar, but not a theater historian. He is not a practicing Christian. I mean, neither am I, obviously, but, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, he really enjoyed it. I think he was surprised, but he really okay. enjoyed it. He loved the whole experience. The area is gorgeous. Everyone is incredibly nice. The food is great. Um, yeah, so I, I recommend Bavaria. I recommend Munich. <laughs> really <laughs> awesome. Really nice people. Um, I, a little bit of me wonders almost if they see they see Americans if they go out of their way to be nice. I don't know. Um, maybe like a mixed race couple. Mm. They something. Who knows? But they definitely there is a um move to kind of demonstrate I don't know <laughs> demonstrate something so that so that was that was the experience it was really cool it was very interesting it parallels the middle ages in ways that are very interesting um it continues to respond to the plague just a different plague but <laughs> yeah Good but it was show. it was very different definitely from what I think I I don't know what I expected but it was really cool mm-hmm. I recommend it Neat. So, okay, so if you are listening to this and you can get to Germany before October, you too yep. can Or in eight play. years. You know, plan ahead. Or in eight years. But yes. anyway, just go, you know, check yeah. out Munich. Check out Bavaria. That Nice places. Yes, do it. All right, so the other thing that Oberammergau is sort of famous for is it's mentioned in this limerick. It's not a limerick. It's yeah. it's a tongue twister. It's a song. It's a song. It's a you can um I'll put a link to one of the versions of it that I found. And I just said that I was going to learn to recite it. So I will close I'll do that yes. and that will be Well, we should say it's because Oberammergau okay. is by Unterammergau, which is a t- right because it's yes. Um which sound I mean like they're long and kind of funny. Yeah, and then there's the Ammergau sort of area of the Alps. So but yeah, yeah. So that's why. <laughs> yeah. So the song yes. is that someone is coming from somewhere, right? And they're coming by way of. Are they coming by way of Oberammergau or by way of Unterammergau? And the thing is, because in yes. German, like of and by way of or whatever, is all like Oben Uber, and so it's all the same sounds. Yeah. Yes. So so the the <laughs> tongue twister is heute kam der Hans zu mir freut sich die Lies. Ober, aber, uber, ober, amergau, oder, aber, uber, unter, amergau, oder, aber, überhaupt nicht kommt. Das ist net geweist. So, today, Hans is coming to me, um, celebrates Liza? Yeah. Rejoices. Rejoices, Liza. Um, if he comes by way of ober, amergau, or he comes by way of unter, amergau, or if he doesn't come at all, uh, it's not certain. Yay! But, yeah. Yes. Fun times. Everyone's, you know, okay. Germans do have Let's... a sense of humor. There you go. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> it is, of course, the... Um, Flula Borg has 
yes. commented on the idea that they don't have senses of humor and that they don't have stand-up comedy by kind of kind of agreeing with that. And I think saying that that's why he had to learn English. Um, and I haven't, there's someone else I know who's German who also kind of said that as well. But this is, of course, unfair. They do have humor. <laughs> and this is a good example of it. I have. There you are. Yes. I have been learning German for a while, and I've only sort of dipped my toe into the German actual culture world. Um, and it's a whole thing. There's like this this thing that's you can youtube it it's called bernard the bread or burn dust broach yes and he's like this yes! angry bread wait 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 nihilistic did keith send no. you that three no. years ago for the first time no i found Are you it sure? on a different podcast it got mentioned on a different podcast okay because keith became obsessed with this three years ago when he came to visit me in okay. greece in 2019 um it was on television because greece gets german oh, television greece doesn't okay. do it times you know so they do a lot of european television Yes, and that was the first time Keith saw him, and he became obsessed with him, and has continued to be obsessed with him, and we did, in fact, watch a lot of him when we were in Germany. Yeah, welcome in yeah. der Kika Lounge, with thine chill-out coach, burned. Yeah, it's a... Yes, like, what is he? Is he a... Is he Pumpernickel yeah, or something? I don't know. I don't know. He's, he's not Pumpernickel, but he's some kind dark, of dark yeah, bread. And he German bread, obviously. Be, he doesn't want to be German. hosting. And it's like... Yes. A, what do you call it? It's not a screensaver. It's like the thing that the TV channel puts on after it goes off for the night. Right? It's like a thing. Kind yeah. of. Well, I mean, it's like robot. I think of it as like robot chicken here. Sure. Okay. You know, it's like late, late night, night TV. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's German. That's, that's German weird. Humor. Late night TV that's weird. <laughs> Hence the robot yes. chicken reference. Okay. Yeah. Um, yay. But yes, we will definitely link yes. to him. So <laughs> he's a loaf of bread. Um, Germany, yes. it's a whole weird place. Yep. And but with like amazing art and clocks and you know beer stuff stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, beer. I want to say. I mean, the beer is great. Okay. You know, as it's is another the thing that That's we have in Wisconsin: meat and potatoes. Yes. Probably not a coincidence. Also, some excellent beer. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so we're gonna <laughs> leave it there. So we don't just become the German tourism board. And I will wrap this up by saying you can Facebook us at Ask Medievalist. Just like search it on Facebook. Just Google it. Whatever. There's we're the only Ask Medievalist that will come up. Or if some other Ask Medievalist comes up, it's not us. Oh, imposters. They're they're wrong. No, we're we're the only ones. (laughs) Um, And tell a friend. Shout out your window about how much you love us. Um, find me on the street and give me a high five. Yes. <laughs> and until next time, uh, keep washing your hands and keep it medieval. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons Attributional Non-Commercial License version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? 
For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com.